smote the Egyptians, but delivered our homes, and the people bowed low and worshipped. You guys will turn with me as well to John uh, chapter 1, verse 1. going to just uh, spend this time kind of putting all of what we've read tonight uh, together. Um, you might have no doubt picked up on the flow of the story as it unfolds in Scripture. I just want to read uh, just verses 1 through 5 to start, and then we'll start unpacking it from there. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So as we've been uh, unpacking these readings tonight, uh, that very first reading, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, you'll notice the echo of those exact same phrases here in John's gospel. John, unlike all the other gospel writers, opens up with uh, a definitive Christ claim of this uh, character who he calls the Word. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And we know that according to Jewish scriptures and Jewish thought, there is no one who is in the beginning before time began except for God Almighty. A Jewish person believes that the only person who is the uncreated being is the Almighty God. So the Creator God is this person who's put the whole world into existence, who has revealed himself to Moses as the I am, the one who has no beginning. He just is, and he always will be. And then when John writes his gospel and he pens it down, the very first words that he seeks to put into frame is those same kinds of words, bringing to mind what a Jewish person is expecting in an answer, which is, who is this Jesus? Who is this Christ? And he says, in the beginning was the word. Now, he doesn't tell us who that word is. He's going to spend the rest of his gospel unfolding that. But he begins to give us some clues as to who that word is. You'll notice in verse 6 of that gospel, he tells us not just to take his word for it, but he says that there was a man who was sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is not John, the writer of the gospel. This is John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. And all men might believe through him. He, John, was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And that's significant because when he says John the Baptist came to bear witness about the light, you'll remember that light is something he's introduced as being linked with the word. The word is later revealed to uh, be the light of the life of men. You'll see that in verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And then he says, John the Baptist is the one who's going to bear witness or testify about who that light is. And then when John opens his mouth, he says some pretty interesting things about that light. But we're not there yet, so we'll keep reading in verse 9. He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and yet the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I think that's an important 
thing that John, John draws out at the early verses of his gospel as well. He tells us that although he put himself into the world, he came into the world, the world that he created. He also tells us that the world did not know him and that his own people did not receive him. Now that fulfills something we read just a moment ago in Isaiah. In Isaiah, when he prophesies the coming king, the Messiah, he says that he will be of no form and no likeness that we will look upon him. He will be rejected by his own people. That's an important thing because what John is doing is expecting that his audience has these verses in mind, expecting the Messiah, and he's painting a picture of who that Messiah is. You see, what John's trying to do in the early chapters uh, and verses of his gospel, and really throughout his whole gospel, is he's unpacking the picture of one of the most difficult questions in the Old Testament, which is, how do you put together the prophecies of uh, a Messiah who's supposed to be God himself, the Son of God, who's supposed to be a king, a ruler for all eternity, and who's also supposed to deal with the sin problem in Israel. And none of the prophets have a really easy time putting that together. In fact, many of the prophets write, and then they don't interpret what they write because they have difficulty putting together the truth of what they're saying. They're saying that this Christ who is to come, this Messiah, is going to be the one who rules forever in the line of David. He's going to be the one whom the scepter will never depart from the house of Judah. He's going to rule and reign in that throne. He's going to be a a servant who is perfect. And yet then Isaiah says he's not only going to be a perfect servant, but he's going to die in the place of sinners. And the question is, well, how do you have a king who rules forever and who also dies? And how do you put those realities together? And many of the rabbis have a difficult time sorting out those truths. They, they have a really difficult time putting those things together. And then it makes it more difficult because there's passages that talk about the Christ who is to come. And they refer to him sometimes as a servant, as a man. And then sometimes they refer to this Christ as also being God. And they'll flip back and forth between the Christ and the God as if they are one and the same. And it becomes very difficult to understand how you would realize that. But then in Psalm 110, we see that kind of same reality. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And you see God saying, or David saying that his son is going to be his Lord. And his Lord is going to sit at the right hand forever. So he's saying God is the one who's going to take the place of that throne. And then in Psalm 1, the psalmist introduces to us the rest of the Psalter saying that that same, or sorry, Psalm 2, and he says that the person who's going to rule and reign in the throne forever is going to be the only begotten Son of God. That's what it says in Psalm 2. It says that the person who steps into that throne, who steps into that place, is not only uh, a derivative offspring of God, but the only begotten Son of God. And he's going to say he, and here John will say that the word became flesh. Which is interesting about that because the world, the word does not get started and then is started as flesh. The word always was from the beginning of time and it merely becomes flesh at the time of the incarnation. That's an important thing to note because the word is without time. It is without time in the same way that God Almighty is without time. And that begins to resolve some of the tension. What John is trying to do to his readers is he's trying to get them to understand how all these Old Testament prophecies begin to fit together. How do we deal with the sin problem of Israel? And how do we resolve that the Messiah is going to actually put these things into place? Because one of the things that we saw in the earlier readings, and this is from uh, the text out of uh, Exodus, you'll see that there's a big sin problem, right? In Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates man. He puts man in the garden. He puts man in the perfect garden. And then man falls and eats the one fruit of the one tree that they weren't supposed to eat. And from that point forward, There's a curse on all mankind. But God promises in that same curse 
he says that between my offspring and the offspring of the enemy, between the offspring of the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between them. And my offspring, the seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman, will bruise the head of his enemy and the enemy will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And that's an important distinction, right? Because uh, women don't have seed unless the seed comes from God through the lineage of a woman, i.e. the virgin birth. And that's where we see that come to fruition early even in Genesis because women don't have a lineage in the Bible. If you were to follow all the genealogies, it all follows the line of the, man, the male heads of the household until you get to the virgin birth, in which case there's no male to trace it back to. And you have to go with the woman uh, and you have to go with Mary. And the angel comes to Mary and he says that this child who you will have will be called holy, the son of God. The child is without sin. The child is perfect. The child is perfect in every single way. He doesn't carry the scar that Adam has passed to all of his offspring. And that is important. That's why the virgin birth is so important. Jesus could not have been born of a human father because if he was born of a human father, he would have carried the sin nature of Adam into his birth as all people who are born after the likeness of Adam are born. But God begets his son in his own image eternally from all creation past. And that son, the second person of the Trinity, takes on a human body. In the beginning was the word. The word is with God, face to face with God. And the word takes on flesh. The word becomes flesh. And that word manifests himself to all mankind. That's verse 14, by the way, of John chapter 1. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word who becomes flesh is the second person of the Trinity, is God incarnate. And that second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, is explicitly defined in John's gospel as Jesus. And to see that, we don't need to go very far. You actually don't need to leave chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 29, you will see that. Remember, John the Baptist is sent into the world to testify about who the light is. And what John says when he sees Jesus of Nazareth, verse 29 of John chapter 1, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I have said, After, he, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist testifying about not only the Lamb of God status of Jesus, but also the eternal status of Jesus. Now, it's interesting that John says that Jesus was before him, because if you remember, Jesus is born after him. The incarnate man, Jesus, is born after John is born. John is six months ahead of Jesus. And yet John says about Jesus that he came before me because he was before me. In fact, he always was before him. Jesus is born of Mary and yet is older than she is. He created the very woman who he would nurse at her breast with. And this is the divine paradox of the incarnation. The beauty of the incarnation is that the eternal God, the holy God, would decide to dwell with his sinful people. And the holy God has to figure out a way to make that possible. Because it wasn't possible for a holy God to be with a sinful people. How that's resolved in the Old Testament is by the continuing sacrifices of perfect lambs. That's how it's resolved in the Passover. Because both Israel and Egypt stand condemned in their sin. So when God sends the destroyer, he needs to make an amendment, if you will, so that the Israelites will survive that destruction. 
because they're just as sinful as the Egyptians are. So the sign that he gives to them, the atonement that he makes, is a temporary one. It's the shedding of the blood of a lamb for each household painted over the doorpost. And that blood is seen by the destroyer and the destroyer will pass over the sins. Notice the blood does not take away the sins. The blood simply causes a, a delayment, a delay of the payment. It's like putting it on a credit card. And the destroyer passes over the sins. And then the Israelites need to constantly and regularly practice this Passover, continually pushing back the payment, back further and further and further. And then by the time we get to the New Testament, Israel, you'll notice, hasn't been able to practice the Passover for a great number of years. In fact, during the entire time of their exile, they're not able to practice the Passover. But then they come back, they're restored as a nation, they begin to practice the Passover again to observe it. And the Passover, the whole time, is painting a picture forward about the ultimate lamb who's going to break his body and shed his blood for the people. That is the word who dwells in the flesh, the world, the word who is sent in the flesh to take away sin. As Paul writes in Romans, he says, God made him to, who knew no sin to be sin. Paul says uh, several times that, that it was necessary that Jesus was both man and God. Because if he wasn't God, he wouldn't be holy enough to deal with the sin problem. That's why the lambs could never take away sin, because they're part of the creation that is broken. You need something outside of creation to take care of that. So the only thing outside of creation is God. But you need something who can understand what it's like to be in the substitutionary place of the thing you're saving. And so he sends himself, the second person of the Trinity, but he also sends him in the likeness and in the form of a man, clothing himself in flesh, clothing himself in the weakness and humiliating himself to put himself into creation so that through his humiliation, he might begin to save and reconcile that creation to himself. And what's significant about John chapter 1, verse 14, is he tells us, John says, that we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What's significant about that is you'll remember the reading out of Exodus 33, where Moses asks God, Lord, let me see your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory. My glory will kill you. Moses is the most holy of the Israelites, and the glory of God would completely destroy him. And so what God says is, I'll tuck you into a rock, I will cover you, and then as I'm passing by, you can see my trailing glory. And so that's what he gives to Moses. And that trailing glory causes Moses' face to shine for months. But it doesn't kill him. And no one can see the glory of God. And yet John writes in his gospel that we have seen the glory of God. Because what God did to his glory is he clothed it in a human body. He clothed it in finite flesh. The world, the word who was forever, the glory of God fully incarnate into a human body, the mystery of the incarnation is that his glory indwells in a human form. And that glory can barely be contained by the human form. In fact, at certain points in Jesus' ministry, the glory shines forth and it's called the transfiguration and, and it's barely containable. And they don't know what they've seen. And the glory shines forth through the human man and it's barely containable. And so for his entire life and his entire ministry on this earth, it's really glory bursting at the seams in a human form. And that glory is recognized by some and rejected by others to fulfill what is spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that he will come to his people, but his people won't know him. He will come to the world. He will seek to save the lost world, 
but the lost world will reject him. And he will bear the sins of the world according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God by being crucified on a cross. And the mystery of the incarnation is that all of that happens by human free choice and by God's divine ordained plan from all of eternity. And that's both the chaos of the incarnation because Satan tried his best at that moment to send all of his demons to tempt Jesus, to send all of the wickedness and sin he could into the world to oppress Jesus, to send the religious leaders in to kill him several times before his time had come. They tried to stone him, you'll remember. But none of it could stop the plan of God. None of it could deal with the incarnate man who was always set to die on a cross. His destiny could not be stopped because it had been ordained in all of eternity past by God. The Trinity had decided how to save humanity. They had hatched a plan. And the incarnation is the beginning of that plan beginning to be realized by humans. The plan promised in Genesis 3.15 that he will put enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the serpent will have his head bruised or his head crushed while the seed of the woman will have his heel bruised. And that just speaks to the kind of damage that's going to be done because Jesus had to sustain real damage on the cross. It was not a light affliction. He, bear the, he bore the full weight of sin, the full weight of shame, the full agony of the wrath of God. He was cut off from relationship with the Father so that he could deal with the sins of the people. And all of that has to require an incarnate God. He needed to be God to deal with the sin because he was the perfect sacrifice. And he needed to be man to stand in the place of man so that he could rightly represent man to God. And now, as he's resurrected, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he mediates eternally for us. He always goes before the Father, constantly reminding the Father that he is resurrected, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect atonement for sin, the perfect payment for the demand of sin. Lambs could never take away sin. They could never deal with it because they're part of the fallen creation. No priest could offer a sacrifice because the priest himself is sinful. That's why we need a high priest who's perfect, as Psalm 110 says, after the order of Melchizedek. The priest who we don't know when he began and we don't even know if he died. Found in Genesis in some obscure passage who Abraham pays offerings to and tithes to. And that priest is the pattern of the type of Christ. He's not a Levitical priest. He wasn't instituted by God at some point in time. He's a high priest who goes beyond time, who existed before the promise came to Abraham. That's the high priest who we need, someone in that order, that type. And Jesus comes as that high priest. And he comes as not only a sacrifice and not only as a priest, but he comes also as a king. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, Paul writes these words. He says that he must reign forever until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now Jesus, when he resurrects from the grave, conquers death. He defeats death. But he has to rule over this creation until all enemies are subjugated. And at the fullness of time, when time comes, death and Hades will be cast forever into eternal hell. And death will die, finally. Right now, death has lost. And its time is coming when it will expire and it will be fully ruled over. It will be fully reigned over. It will be fully dominated. And it will be fully destroyed. But right now, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. He is the king right now, ruling on the throne of his father, David. And David, who came before him, also required saving by him. Mary, who birthed him, required salvation by him. As the angel says to Mary, he will take away the sins of his people. 
He will be their Savior, He will be their Christ, and He will be their Lord. He is the one who's going to come and to deal with all of the problems pointed out in the Old Testament. And this Christ, who has come, has allowed us to go face to face with God. Not because we are worthy, but because God decided he was going to come down and come face to face with us. And Christ is face to face with the Father. And then he bridges that gap and allows us to see the face of the glory of God. And he'll reconcile us with the Father and we will be once again like Adam and Eve, who will be face to face walking with God in a perfect garden and a perfectly restored creation. That's the hope that Christ establishes. He deals with the problem that Moses had. Moses wants to see the glory of God and he can't. But Christ takes away the sin so that once again we can. And he restores us to being sons and daughters of the king. He allows us to be adopted into the family of God. He takes all of these things through his incarnate body. It's the only way to make it possible. And that's why year after year after year we gather as a people regularly at this time to remember the incarnation. There's a, an old Jewish belief, an old Jewish prophetic belief that a prophet would be conceived on the day that they died. So they would have been conceived and they would die on the same day. And that's actually where we get the 25th from. The reason we celebrate Christ's uh, birth on the 25th is because if you look at Easter, that is a certain day, and you would say that that was his conception day because he died on that day. And then you go add nine months to it and we get the 25th of December. So that's where that date comes from. That's why we celebrate Christ's birth on this day, because we add nine months to the date of his conception, because he was also a prophet, a prophet after the order of Moses, a prophet after the order of Elijah. And the Jewish people considered him to be a prophet, and he was crucified and buried for his prophetic mission, his prophetic voice. And that voice is that he is the salvation, that he is the one who takes away the sin. As John says in his gospel, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the perfect picture of the Passover. He's the perfect lamb. He is the ultimate fulfillment of that expectation. And so as we close our time together in uh, remembrance right now, we're going to take communion. And I think the important thing to remember about communion is who instituted it. It's the same person who came to fulfill that picture, right? Communion and the Passover is, a, is really a continuation of the Passover celebration. The Passover is the meal that they're having together when Jesus uh, decides he's going to institute uh, the communion meal. And what he says when he's instituting the Lord's Supper, he says that this bread that I'm breaking and sharing with you is my body. And what that means is this bread is a, a, a picture or a sign of the kind of salvation that we get when the body of Christ is broken. He says the same thing about his blood. He says that the blood, this, this wine, this cup is the blood of the covenant. It's my blood and it's going to be poured out for you so that you can be made right with God. And the shedding of blood takes away the sins of the world. And so we drink the wine as a remembrance or as a sign of the blood of Christ. In the same way that the Jewish people who were sitting there having the Passover meal would have eaten the flesh of the lamb and they would have remembered the death of the lamb, the atonement of the sin of the lamb for them. In the same way, Christ comes and institutes the, the communion, the Lord's Supper, to take place and replace that sign. Because when he comes and when he dies, he does away with all of the old sacrifices. He does away with all of the old sins. And so what we do when we take the Lord's Supper together is we are reminding ourselves of that sacrifice, of that atonement. Now remember, the, the body represented by the bread is necessary for sin. That's why the incarnation is needed. 
the wine, which is uh, representing the blood of Jesus, is necessary, and it's only present in an incarnate body. He needed to be fully God to be perfect, but we remember him through finite things because he took on a finite form, and he took on flesh, just like you and I, and he breathed and he lived a life just like we did. And all of this comes together to uh, remind us why we, why we gather at this day, why we remember Jesus as the incarnate Son of God. That's what Advent is all about. It's the first coming of Christ. And the whole time we gather here, we're always expecting then again the second coming of Christ, the second Advent. Because in the first Advent, he deals with the sin problem, as is prophesied throughout the whole Old Testament. And in the second coming, he's going to deal with the kingship issue the second half of those prophecies, the prophecies that deal with him ruling and reigning over everything. And he deals with all of those things between a first and then a second coming. And so he dies in the first, is resurrected to life, and he's coming again to rule and reign and to once again put all things to bed. And so let's remember Christ now as we take uh, the Lord's Supper. So I want to just give you a few moments to uh, pray and to uh, reflect on any uh, sins that you have unconfessed to maybe reflect and thank the Lord for the, the offering that he has given to us, the way that he makes us right with him. And then we'll close with a prayer and then we will take communion together.